It's time for Tycoons of Small Biz, spotlighting the true backbone of the American economy, the true tycoons of business in America, the owners, founders, and CEOs of small businesses. The show's hosts, Austin Peterson and Landon Nance, are registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Backbone Planning Partners is a marketing name for registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Now let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's Tycoons. Good afternoon, Tycoons, and welcome to Tycoons of Small Biz. I am here again with you two weeks in a row. I know, I know, it's been a while. Landon Mance, Austin, your typical host is uh, still traveling the world uh, with his family. Uh, sent me some really nice pictures uh, a couple hours ago, Eiffel Tower, the Coliseum out there. So they're they're traveling around. I think they're in Rome right now, and then they're heading over to Denmark. So Austin, uh, if you're listening, uh, we're living vicariously through you right now because uh, where we're at, uh, the weather isn't quite uh, as friendly. So if this is your first time listening, um, welcome. We're happy happy to have you joining us. You know, Tycoon's a small biz. We've been at it for a little bit over two years. We're about 110 episodes in. And we created Tycoon's a small biz and launched actually on uh, Cinco de Mayo of 2020 because we wanted to create a platform and experience for small business owners primarily, but also nonprofits occasionally as well to come on and talk about themselves and their stories, their background and their businesses or their you know endeavors that they're involved in right now so that we can prop them up, we can help get the word out because we truly believe that small business owners are the backbone of the American economy. Hence, you know the, the name of our business, which is Backbone Planning Partners. So uh, really excited to be here today. Um, I get to sit alongside a, a good buddy of mine and a great co-host, Gary Braun. So, uh, Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here, man. Glad to be here again. Absolutely. So, again, you know, typically Austin's the one hosting. So, when Gary joins as a co-host occasionally, and you know, Gary's a, a great partner of the show, and our other partner co-host occasionally as well, Ryan Weissmuller from uh, Fintrepid. Uh, usually, it's Austin. And so now I, I get to join. So always good to spend time with a good buddy, Gary. And we're really excited to have a tycoon on the show today who has a really interesting and uh, a unique background, which uh, we're, we're excited to unpack all of that. But today we've got Joe Serrano. And Joe is the CEO and the executive director of Tent Makers Incorporated. And uh, Tentmakers is a nonprofit community housing development corporation that specializes in workforce housing development and job training opportunities for uh, low to moderate income households. So, Joe, uh, welcome to Tycoons of Small Biz. Thanks for being here, my friend. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. The pleasure is all ours. I promise you that. So, Joe, before we get into talking about some of the really interesting stuff that you do in tent makers and some of the other endeavors that you're involved in, tell us a little bit about yourself, Joe. You know, where where did you grow up? Uh, tell us about your family. 
tell us anything interesting and important about your background that you that you'd like uh, for for us to know. Well, there's a lot. I won't try to take up the whole show explaining everything, but uh, I've had a pretty interesting life. I grew up in a family of seven, I think. I haven't lost count. I have four sisters, and I'm the I'm the only son. When I graduated from high school, I joined the United States Marine Corps, and I spent three years uh, serving uh, the uh, serving as a United States Marine. Uh, when I, I got out of the service, I took advantage of the educational uh, programs that the VA offers and went to college and studied architecture. Before I could graduate, though, I'm the type of guy that I'm a, I'm a person who takes advantage of opportunity. I, I've been told that that's, uh, you know, people like me are called opportunists. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but when I see opportunity, I jump through the window because I know sometimes windows of opportunity don't stay open for long. So uh, I uh, took my first job uh, right out of college, uh, working for the Contra Costa Housing Authority as a construction superintendent. And that's where my architectural and construction background began. While I was working for the, uh, for the Contra Costa Housing Authority, I met a father-son contracting couple, father and son, and they uh, had asked me if I wanted to help them frame houses. And I, of course, said yes. I framed houses for about three years, and that's how I learned how to, how houses were built. It was always uh, I was always um, kind of mystified about how houses were built, what what makes them stand up. So uh, my experience uh, framing uh, for three years helped me to understand structure. Uh, so later later, as I uh, started to grow in my my knowledge of housing, I was offered an actual full time job with the Contra Costa Housing Authority. And at the same time, I was offered a full-time job with the city of San Pablo as a, in, in a community housing. And I lived in San Pablo at the time, so I took the San Pablo job, and I was there for seven years learning about community development and redevelopment. Right after that, I, I didn't quite finish. I think I was there for seven years. And again, I'm a, I'm a person of opportunity, and uh, at the time, I was a HUD 203K consultant. And what HUD 203K consultants would do is they help people, typically first-time home buyers, purchase fixer-uppers. And the 203K program is a, an acquisition rehabilitation program. And so uh, as a 203K consultant, my job was to be the eyes and ears for the bank, whoever was going to be funding that project, and for HUD to make sure that all of the federal regulations were being uh, complied with. But I also was trying to help that particular homeowner and making the best decisions that they could possibly make when it came to making home improvements. So I would advise them what would be a good decision, what not, what wouldn't be a good decision. And my, I always try to look for the best uh, opportunities when it comes to fixing older homes. Today, we have a totally different climate in California. California is probably the second least affordable place to live in the whole United States, Hawaii being the number one. But California is right behind them. We are probably a million housing units backlogged. California should be building probably around 200, 250,000 units a year. And we're probably getting away with maybe 80 to 100,000 units a year. So every year we're backlogged and we're currently over probably a million housing units short. Now with all the, of the influx of the population in California, as you know or may not know, 
the median home price in California is about $800,000. That's the highest it's ever been since I've been keeping the pulse of housing conditions here in California. And so because of that, there has been a lot of fallout in the homeless community. We have a lot of homelessness here. Even people who have a job are living in their vehicles. And so what, uh, what I have in a group of people, uh, other volunteers, other nonprofits and uh, small businesses have decided to do is get together and collaborate on how can we work together uh, using our particular intellectual bandwidth, come together and extend our bandwidth and work as a, like a super highway, broad bandwidth of intellectual specialized knowledge. So we come together and I just stay in my lane. I don't try to go into other people's land. They do what they do. They do it well. And that's why we work together as a collaborative. I do what I do and hand the baton off to somebody when it's time for them to do what they do. And in doing that, we're able to really uh, eliminate a lot of downtime. We're able to utilize resources more effectively, and we're able to uh, help a lot more people. And it's comprehensive, more comprehensively. So in that philosophy, I actually did a PowerPoint presentation about that philosophy, and I call it the pathway to permanency. And it's based on uh, collaboration, and it's based on a broad intellectual bandwidth and having a strategic uh, execution plan so that we know uh, who is next in line to hand the baton off to whenever we're working on a project. And I'll give you an example of that. Right now, we're working with UC Berkeley architectural engineering students, and we have come together to build a tiny house on wheels, 240 square feet. And we are doing this so that we can demonstrate the city of Richmond, where I live today, the city of Richmond's uh, tiny house in my backyard ordinance, which allows people to put tiny homes, which are basically classified, well, they're legally, I guess, regulatory, classified as RVs. So they're, they're registered with DMV. They're not considered buildings. They're not considered uh, under the UBC or Uniform Building Code. They are considered vehicles. And, and technically and legally in Richmond, you cannot park a vehicle in your backyard uh, for any length of time. You have to move it. But through this ordinance, what the city has done is they've, have, they've classified a tiny house on wheels as an ADU, which I think is very novel. But we're using this opportunity to develop the um, try to extract data information because the ultimate goal for us is to create a tiny house home ownership land trust model. Just to go back a little bit in history, a little bit going back in time, I have two sons, four grands, four grandchildren. I'm divorced. I'm not. I'm not married. I'm single, and I, I think it's a good thing for anyway for anybody who wanted to wants to. Uh, you know, share their life with me because I work 10, 12 hours a day, six days a week. I take one day off. And I used to work seven days a week, but, you know, this is my passion. This is what I do. So, so I got to, first of all, I want to say um, thanks for your service. And as I'm listening to you, my daughter's in the Marines. She was at Oceanside. She's at Pendleton as well. And uh, she's, she's in the process of uh, transitioning out and applying a skill. So she's following the same path you did, Joe. So it's uh it's inspiring to know that there's a, a path for my daughter coming out of the Marines. So that's awesome. Thank you for your service on that. You're so welcome. You're so welcome. You know, there's that's one thing. And, and congratulations to your daughter because there's only, you know, a few proud, right? Many are called, few are chosen. It's a tough, uh, tough road to, to follow. But I can tell you this. How, uh, I don't know how your daughter is, but for me, I was 17 when I went into the Marine Corps. But it was probably the best thing I could have done because it really teaches 
you what you're made out of. You know, yeah. it really, really pushes you beyond uh, the borders of, of what you're used to walking, walking on. Uh, you actually break barriers. They teach you to believe in yourself. They teach you how to have confidence. They, they teach you about teamwork. And I think it's a great experience for any young person who doesn't know what they want to do in life to uh, to go into the armed services. I wouldn't necessarily say it's the Marine Corps is for everybody, but I would say this, that if you do decide to go into the Marine Corps, it will change your life. It, it absolutely did for her. She uh, she did one year of college, I think, just to make me happy. And then she said, Dad, the same for me. Uh, I'm going into the Marines. And I was like, oh, okay. And they, they put you through a lot. I mean, go through, uh, uh, what is, I'm totally blanking on, what's the, the, the crucible at the end to get you through all that. And holy cow, what she went through and how she has ascended through the ranks there. And she's done really good. She's, she's exiting now and going into a whole new field. But my question out of there was, you go from a 17-year-old kid in the Marines, what got you into housing? Was that just like the, one of the first things that popped out or what, what got you interested in the whole construction market? Well, I didn't want to be a Marine forever. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you something. It, you know, uh, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. Once a Marine, always a Marine, you know, because my, I'm just so disciplined now. It almost uh, scares me because um, I, I expect so much uh, from myself. I don't settle for mediocrity. I got to go beyond that. I always try to better myself every single day that goes by. I don't want to settle for, for what I was yesterday. I want to supersede that. I want to go beyond that. But what uh, what really got me into housing and stuff was I'm an artist, and I thought about it while I was in in the Marine Corps. Uh, that uh, I I knew I didn't want to be a starving artist. So what I did was I went to school and I studied architecture to, to use my skill sets to design houses. That, that's awesome. Hey, and I, I spent some time on your website um, looking at some of the projects. I'm looking at some of the videos and stuff, which are awesome. Tell us, and you mentioned it just a moment ago. So tell us a little bit about, like, like one of the big things I saw a lot on there about the tiny houses. And I don't think not everybody knows what they are or whatnot. So give us an explanation. What is a tiny house? Well, a tiny house is exactly what it says. It's a tiny house. The house we're building right now is 240 square feet. But it is... It's a lot bigger than you might think. You know, most homes here, I would say the average house is probably 1,200 square feet. Yeah. Uh, so 240 square feet is uh, just a little bit larger than a single car garage, right? Um, I was really surprised when our trailer was delivered, uh, you know, 10 by 24. I was thinking in my head, well, you know, that's, that doesn't sound big. But when I saw it, it was huge. And I thought, wow, this isn't going to be so tiny after all. But, but a tiny house is self-contained. Ours is, because it is being uh, designed by UC Berkeley architectural and graduate students, architectural and engineering grad students, it's going to be state-of-the-art net zero, meaning that we're going to try to make it so that it doesn't depend on the grid or energy or things like that. So it's going to be solar. It'll recycle water and, and brown water. It will be totally green. In fact, right now we're installing hydronic baseboards a warm board heating system. So the, the, the heat system is in the floor with hydronics. So it, it's going to be very, uh, very uh, high tech. But uh, tiny houses also are very uh, diversified. They can be on a foundation. They can be on wheels. Ours right now uh, is on wheels, but we, we want to make it hybrid where we can install jacks on the side of it, back it into a pre-built foundation, 
jack it up, take the wheels off, drop it back down on foundation, and it becomes real estate. Or or we can take it off and move it someplace else. So tiny houses, um, by the way, Gary, that's a, a really good question. I wish there was a real simple answer, but I think it I think it is a, sort of a, a, an emerging, evolving technology. I think that there's going to be a lot of innovation. As you know, there's probably a lot of things that are out there with regards to tiny houses that I haven't seen yet. And I've, I've seen a lot of stuff. But in California, as I mentioned before, we are sort of doing a lot of policy uh, making uh, or laws or creating laws that allow things like the tiny house in my backyard ordinance that the city of Richmond passed that basically defines a tiny house regulated under DMV to become an ADU. The state recently passed a law called SB9, which is a very uh, innovative uh, law in that it allows people who have single family lots, single family zoned lots to subdivide them and, and build duplexes. And with the S, with the uh, ADU law, you can have up to you can add two more units to a duplex, creating a fourplex. So you can actually go from a single family home on a single lot to two lots with four units on each lot. And you're targeting the low to moderate income type of families. You're you're trying to address the the homeless issues that are going on. That that's really who the target market is. Our target market is uh, from 30% of median income all the way up to moderate income. As a community housing development corporation, in our bylaws, we're allowed to do, uh, we could even do a, you know, a small percentage of market rate. But the majority of our work has to benefit LMI, which is low moderate income. And so we, you know, in California, at least in my experience, it's been very difficult to provide a permanent housing solution. For extremely low house, extremely low income households who are earning 30% of the median income, and so that's our that's really the challenge. And not only that, but we want to make homeownership opportunities available to that level of income, which is a very challenging thing to do. One of the things that uh, was really helpful for me in our initial conversation, because. What you're doing and, and, and describing, you know, to us, I think a lot of people are, you know, just really unfamiliar with kind of uh, kind of what you're doing and why you're doing it, and you know, the different laws and the, you know, um, acronyms and, and stuff like that. So, anyway, what was really helpful for me when we had our initial conversation was to get some better context as to why. Why would people want to do this? You know, why would somebody that, that already is an existing homeowner, you know, why would they want to explore SB9 and potentially take advantage of that, of that law? Um, also, you, you alluded to the uh, ADU acronym a couple of times, and I, I'm guessing most people don't, don't know what that is, what it stands for, what it's all about. So could you kind of speak to that for a couple of minutes? Because I, I think that just really helps to provide some, some good context, context as to why would people want to learn more about and explore kind of what you're describing? Well, to begin with, ADU stands for Accessory Dwelling Unit. 
And the reason I think that people would like to take advantage of it, there's two types of, of people that would do this. One would be an investor for the obvious reasons of making money and for a homeowner as well. It's a, it's a way to make money, but it's also a way to increase density in single family zoned lots, right? I mean, because there's a lot of just open space when you have, you know, say a 7,000 square foot lot and you're only allowed to have one house on it, right? That's just a waste of land. When you can make more units, uh, you increase the availability of housing that can be affordable to people who are in the target income ranges, you know, 80 to probably maybe 50 to 120 uh, percent of moderate income. So I think that the reason people do it is because they want to maybe help a family member. Maybe they want their parents to come and live with them. You know, there's a lot of reasons why people do it. Got it. Yeah, that's helpful. And you said something interesting which was this notion building these tiny homes and having them on wheels, but also having like this foundation that you can drop them back onto. I mean, to me, that seems really cool, really innovative. I've never seen or really heard, you know, anything like that. So talk to us a little bit more about that. Is that something that's already happening or is that what the Berkeley students are are working on to kind of uh, perfect, if you will, or where where does that project stand at the moment? Well, right now, the uh, tiny house in my backyard project with UC Berkeley is we are, uh, we have begun the build. We are starting to install, we already installed the insulation and the, uh, the warm boards, the subfloors is being installed now. The, I don't remember the, the first question you had asked me, but uh, we, we are currently, oh, here's the other thing about the tiny house project. You know, when we when we first thought about this idea, you know, it was, it was innovative enough to be able to build a tiny house and put it in somebody's backyard. But we think about this intellectual bandwidth. And when you have more minds thinking about the same problem, you're going to come up with a lot of different solutions. And in fact, sometimes we think outside the box, which creates opportunity. And one of the opportunities that we have created is creating a scholarship program with a, uh, a city of Richmond organization called Richmond Build. And Richmond Build is a building academy, a 12-week building academy where community members can enroll and they learn the building trades in 12 weeks. So what we have done is we've created a scholarship program for the Richmond Build graduates so that once they graduate, we will pay them to come and help us build the tiny houses. We want to do this on a, you know, an ongoing basis, uh, perhaps even create a manufacturing uh, company where we can start kicking out these tiny houses on a programmatic basis. So, you know, we're getting, we're getting the county involved, uh, the bank, local, local community banks involved. And as I mentioned before, through the pathway to permanency, we have a collaborative group of nonprofit, local nonprofits and small businesses who come together and we start thinking about this continuum. So it's not just about tiny houses, but it's about this pathway that starts from homelessness to homeownership. So I also am an minister. I'm a minister for uh, the Richmond Build, uh, not Richmond Build, but uh, the Bay Area Rescue Mission. So I, I, I work with the rescue mission working with people who come on, who are coming off the street and they're going through this program to get their lives together, right? They're, they want to, they want to make their lives better. So I'm there to help them with that. 
But part of this is to create this pathway from homelessness to through the, the Bay Area Rescue Mission to the Richmond Build Facility. They graduate, we hire them, they can build tiny houses and they can actually live in those houses. And then we're working with the county and city of Richmond to uh, get a grant subsidy because a lot of lower income, especially somebody coming out of home uh, homelessness, they don't make a lot of money. So we wanna help them get on their feet, go to school, learn a trade, get a job, but they have a permanent place to live and they don't have to worry about transition, you know, because it's just a terrible way to live when you have to move after a year. There's no stability and people need to have stability. That's that's awesome. And, and is it still the case that there's a shortage of people in the construction trades? I mean, that, that I, I don't know, maybe it varies by parts of the country, but there seems to be a shortage in various parts of the country on having people who are in that field. I think that I'm not sure if it's a, yeah, I would say if you look at it that way, yeah, there's a shortage because the demand is so great. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's crazy here in California. You would think that after COVID-19 that everything would be, you know, affected, but real estate sort of, maybe that's a steroid for a housing COVID-19. It seems, it seems like nothing has slowed down down at all. In fact, it has just grown the housing market Mm -hmm. here in California and all the opportunities because of, uh, the bills like SB9 and and uh, SB1069, which is the ADU law, because of those, it opens the doors for a lot of uh, a lot of opportunity. It's a growing market. It was a market that didn't exist legally, at least to my knowledge, uh, prior to 2017. So since 2017, all it has done is grow uh, like weeds. Joe, we're gonna um, just take a quick break for a call to action here, and then uh, we will continue the conversation. So just hang tight for a second here. Hey there, tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. If you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon, and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest, please follow and then message us at Tycoons of Small Biz on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit. And if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast, but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years and you'd like to know what your business is worth, please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no-obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you, and thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now, back to today's program. So so I'm interested, Joe. um, We talked a little bit about tiny houses, and that's really cool. I mean, it's 240 square feet. It's not big, but it's, it's stability, as you talked about. But you also do outside of that, too. You do a lot of home renovations. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. As I mentioned before, I, I was a 203K consultant, which is a, the eyes and the ears of a bank who funds uh, acquisition rehab for first-time home buyers or for existing home buyers who want to renovate their homes. So my job uh, as a uh, HUD or as a HUD 203K consultant and now as a project manager, because now we're contracting. So we're a design build now, but before I was doing it for other people. So ultimately I want to be able to purchase homes and, and do it for, for the company, for the nonprofit, so that we can actually uh, make it more affordable for people by carrying back equity. Uh, so it becomes more affordable. But what I do is I'm a designer, residential designer, I'm an inspector, um, 
and uh, also do the uh, job specifications and create the contracts and, and things like that. I monitor uh, projects. I inspect for uh, the progress that contractors make on a project and authorize draws on behalf of the bank and the homeowner. And so my job as a fund control person, designer, kind of like an architect. I'm not an architect, but I, I do pretty much what architects do, and maybe a little bit more in that my background in redevelopment and community development gives me a little competitive edge because I know the language of the bureaucracy, right? The local jurisdictions. I speak the language. I know the, I know the drill. Uh, so I, I represent my, my clients so that they don't have to go through that painful experience sometimes. You know, I don't want to bad mouth any jurisdictions, but it can be a painful juris, a painful experience, especially now with COVID-19, because all the jurisdictions, building departments and planning departments are uh, taking applications online. They don't really have their offices open where you can just walk in and sit down and talk to a planner and get your answers or get the questions answered right away. You have to submit everything through a portal. And two, the uh, face of, of the codes and regulations are changing so rapidly. And you have to under, we have to sort of understand what the state's intent of a, a particular law is. And then we have to work with the cities because of their interpretation. Not everybody is reading these laws the same. The, the state has an intent. The, the cities that are obligated to adhere to these policies or these laws, they have their own interpretation of it. And then, of course, the public either doesn't know anything about it, and people like me, we have our own interpretation of it as well. And so we do a lot of locking of horns and trying to educate everybody. We're educating one another. So it's a, it's, it's a very challenging process. So my job is just to get that, that, my ultimate job is to get the permit. But Landon, this is a lot more complex than the typical tycoon that comes on the show. I mean, it's about who do I go sell stuff to? How do I pay for it? How do I make money? We don't have to deal with all these laws and regulations and awareness and policy and all the rest of it. It's, it's incredible. Out of all that, Joe, what, what is the most challenging part of making all of this work? <laughs> all of that, right? <laughs> well, yeah. The, the most challenging part, I think, is uh, time management, probably. And, you know, I, I, I like to think of myself as a, as a people-friendly person. Being a Marine, that's hard to do, right? Because I want to meet you, then I got to kill you, right? <laughs> <laughs> just kidding it's uh the people part is is not as challenging usually you might think that people can be challenging and they can be but i try to instill confidence in my clients so that they really rely on me they they trust me once i get them on my side then it's just a matter of dealing with the uh, the public sector the building departments the planning departments that is probably the most challenging thing because it's so unpredictable you don't know when they're going to like uh, make you do something that they, they never mentioned to you and you're ready to get a final on your permit. And then they throw something else at you and you're wondering, why didn't you bring this up to begin with? Why are you telling us here, we're ready to final this permit and you want us to do a whole nother. I've had that happen several times and my, my clients get very upset and it's, it's understandable. I get upset. I get frustrated, but I still have to keep my calm and be cool and be professional and try to work out the situation uh, without you know, beating anybody up. And that's probably the challenge, most challenging thing to do. Give me an idea of scope. How many people are, are you putting into houses each year? You, the, your mission is, is amazing. And you're getting homeless people off the street or lower moderate income people, you're getting them shelter. 
You're getting them stability. I love that. How many people are you affecting each year? I would say that since I started back, well, I had two companies. The first company I had was called Homes by Design. That was right after I had been employed with the city of San Pablo for seven years. And, you know, I jumped through that opportunity and we helped probably around, I'd say about 500 people in about maybe four years, four or five years. It was, it was, it was hot and heavy. Uh, now we're probably doing maybe, well, right now I'm doing probably 15 to 30 projects constantly, just consistently. It just, that doesn't stop. So I don't know. I, I I really just tried to get the job projects finished, but I would say probably 15 to 30 people a year. So how, how do you how do you currently allocate your time between your nonprofit work and your your for-profit work? Well, everything that I do is um, under the nonprofit umbrella because we are a community housing development corporation, right? That means that we can develop, we can build. Um, so everything that I do, I do under that umbrella. So I don't, uh, although we do have the, the, the for-profit, which is basically a design, uh, we don't build in under that umbrella. That, that company is called Bulletproof Designs and it's basically just a design, uh, firm. And we just design and that's more, more market rate stuff, right? So that's, if it's market rate, as, as much as we can, deter all the market rate stuff that'll go under the for-profit and i have a partner who does that but i focus on the nonprofit stuff because of my background and because of what i know i think i can help a lot i'm more useful to people who are in the lower income brackets because they are they have lower income what we're trying to do is bridge the poverty wealth gap through these opportunities of like for example the tiny house we want to train people who are coming out of Richmond Bills. So that's a tr- job training opportunity. And then they can, uh, we can help them maybe buy the tiny house on, on a lower, uh, lower income level. On the higher income levels, my job is to give people to consult with my clients and, and advise them on the highest and the best use of a particular property and, and whether or not I, a property is worth buying. A lot of times, I run into properties that uh, have illegal structures on them. And the, the buyers don't know this, right? I mean, the realtors don't know it. And so when they're, when they're trying to show a house, first thing I do is the due diligence. So I, I find out what is, uh, what is the full nature of this property? Is, is this ADU that's built here in the backyard, is it legal? So I have to find that out because I want to advise my clients that, look, uh, I know they're asking X amount of dollars for this house, but this, this ADU is not legal. So they can't really sell it as it were legal. It's going to cost you money to make it legal. So I would advise you to offer less and tell them why, because you have to spend money to make this unit legal. And I can help you with that. And how do these people find you? How does business end up with you? What are you doing to, who are you networking with or how is it getting referred to you or where does it come from? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Gosh, I knew that. I'm the sales guy. That's what I'm thinking about all the time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, you've heard of word, of word of mouth is the best advertising, right? Sure. So I think that because of my uh, my knowledge, what I know, how I how I try to present myself to my clients by instilling confidence in, in them and performing, right? So you, I can't just talk a good game. I have to walk it too, right? So 
if I talk a good game and they hire me, I got to perform. And so once I do perform, at the end of the day, when their project is completed, they're happiest clients. And the, and I get a lot of referrals. So they'll say, hey, man, you got to talk to Joe. You got to talk to Joe. Got a question for you. And I mean, I, I think theoretically, when we were having this discussion, uh, I mean, at the surface, it, the mission is is great. It's impactful. Uh, you know, who who wouldn't want to support something like this, right, at, at the surface level? But when you get involved in something like this and you've got all of these uh, parties involved, you've got the state, the city, you've got the, 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 the builders, you've got the designers, you've got someone like yourself that understands the nuances and you know, the bureaucracy and kind of navigates that. Then you've got the, you know, the, 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 the individual or the family that's going to be affected. Maybe it's a tiny house or a ADU on somebody's, you know, property that they can live in in a much affordable rate. But uh, my question is, um, how do you communicate the value of doing this so that everybody who is involved sees it as a, as a, as a win, win, win? You know, I think that that, that too is another challenge because most people are not concerned about who wins other than themselves, right? Um, so uh, it's not for everybody. Not everybody can dance to this music, right? There's certain people that understand the tune. They understand what we're trying to do. We There's a thing called uh, NIMBY, NIMBYism. I don't know if you heard that term, but it stands for not in my backyard. And those are the people that just want to protect their own little nest egg, and they don't care about anything but themselves. Unfortunately, that's just people, right? I'm like that. I think we're all like that. But you know, uh, like I said, I'm a minister. I just, uh, I just turned my life over to God, and and uh, He taught me a lot of stuff I didn't know. And one of the things that He taught me was to love my neighbor. So regardless of what anybody thinks, I'm the, and again, I'm a Marine too, right? We we stormed the beach, right? Hey, we stormed the beach. We don't care. And that's the other thing, you know. I mean, that's it come works against me and it works for me. You know, I got to kind of keep it under control because I'm, I'm telling you, once a Marine, always a Marine. And I, and sometimes I come off pretty stern. But sometimes people need to to just be, we just need to be point blank once in a while, right? We just can't beat around the bush. I'm the type of guy that if I got to say something, I'm just going to tell you, I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. I didn't mean to. It's not, that's not what I'm trying to do. But I don't want to like, you know, soften it up and put sugar on it or anything like that, because I'm, that's not my point. My point is I'm just trying to explain something that I, the best way I can do it is just be straightforward and say it. So when I'm dealing with, with people, and I'm trying to help people. I have a philosophy that I try to live by, and that is I don't try to help people who's not willing to help themselves. On my email, I have a little saying, a little motto, and it says, in order to overcome mediocrity, you must experience a brief period of painful transition in order to achieve true excellence. And I live by that. Interesting. I like it. I like it a lot. And you know what I... What I really, really like uh, earlier, you said, what do you say? Uh, I don't want to be the person that I was yesterday or, or something to that effect. And um, uh, I, I love that. I love that. I love the idea of just, you know, of, of continuous improvement. And and definitely I, I will echo what you said there, Joe. I mean, sometimes there's not 
an easy way to say something. You just have to say it. And, you know, sometimes it's uh, received the wrong way. But I think that for the most part, you know, when, when you're genuinely, try, genuinely trying to do something, you know, uh, a value for somebody, I think that they can, they can see that and they can see past the words that you, you know, decide uh, to use. So I wanted, as we kind of get to the tail end of the conversation, Joe, I want to circle back to this because I, I'm just really intrigued by it. And I wanted to see if you have any, any thoughts going back to that, that idea of having this, this permanent foundation, but a mobile house. You know, when you started talking about that, my brain went to this place of, man, I wonder if in the future there could be almost this Airbnb type of, of, of community for mobile homes to where you say, okay, I've I parked my home on this platform at, at Joe, you know, Joe Serrano's, you know, side yard, but I'd like to go out and uh, live in Las Vegas. And so I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to, you know, get my mobile, my, my tiny house on wheels out to Landon's house in Las Vegas. And I'm going to, I'm going to park it there. Do you think something like that? Do you think that's a realistic, uh, you know, type of, program in the future, Joe, or what, what do you think about that? Well, I think that's an interesting concept. I do. Um, I think if you go to Hertz Rent-A-Car, right, you can Hertz rent a tiny house and do Airbnb on that, right? So it can be, uh, you know, they have a, a big lot of little tiny houses, and you say you want to do an Airbnb on that where they can have sort of site control in a sense, right? So they have site control of this tiny house, and they, uh, you know, for whatever, they can pay a, a yearly lease to keep it uh, or they can do a lease to own or they can do you know some some something uh creative that will give them the control of the tiny house and they can put it wherever they want to um and move uh like Air, airbnb instead of having to look for places that provide airbnb spaces they have a uh, airbnb space on wheels and they can take it wherever they want to and they don't have to own it and it can be very affordable so joanne i'm I love what you do. You're changing lives. I mean, this isn't just running a business. You're you're changing lives, and you're you're helping people transition and get back on their feet, which is awesome. Do you have like a favorite story of how you've affected somebody, or the reward that you you personally felt from really helping somebody transition and and get back on their feet? Uh, yeah, um, there's a, there's so many of them. Uh, I'm probably the poster child of that, right? Because if you knew me. 10 years ago, you wouldn't like me because I didn't like me. Uh, I really didn't. But, you know, I was sort of locked in this dream world or this pain locker, right? I mean, things happen to people. You know, I think sure. what happens, people that are very young, or well, at some point in time, usually it's young, they get affected by something that somebody does or they, they, they get affected by somebody, what somebody says and they can't forget it, right? It's so painful. And they carry it in their lives and their hearts and, and they, what they try to do is they they don't want to feel that they want to avoid all pain sure, uh, sure. as much as possible, um, and so they're not able to love right. They're not able to because they're afraid of getting hurt, and so they go on life as a, like a hollow log, a hollow log going down a river, 
not having any direction, just kind of going with the current, the current flow of things until they, uh, you know, find a nice peaceful bank that the log uh, can rest. And so at the rescue mission, I deal with those type of people, right? So these are the type of people that come to the rescue mission. They have their stories. Uh, I had the same story, right? I mean, I was able to share with them my story. My story is just like their story. I'm sure my story is like a lot of people's story. But the problem is that we just don't want people to know our secrets. We don't want them to know that when somebody says, how are you? You know, oh, yeah, I'm fine, but I'm really not. And if I told you, then you're going to think I'm you know, strange or that I'm weak or, or that just I don't want to be looked at like that. I don't want to feel that pain anymore. So I think that the most inspiring thing is that when I'm helping you know, people, I'm talking to them about just life, you know, living on life's terms, talking to them about the painful events that happened in their lives. When they're able to share that with me and even the group of people that kind of have those same experiences, we actually have a moment, a synchronized moment, a moment of synchronicity where we actually are bonded and like-minded. We are spiritually connected. And at that point, that's when we had, there's no obstructions. We can see clearly. I feel you. I, I see. I, I, I do. I feel people. I feel them. And it breaks my heart when I uh, drive down the street and I see a, an old lady. Like I, I've seen so many I've seen so many tragic lives that they're sad. They're just sad. It breaks my heart. Old people, older people, like 80 years old, and they're so broken. So what makes me really inspires me is the fact that I can give them something, right? At least, spend, you know, say, hey, man, you know, what do you need? Food, money, whatever. You know, I want to help you. And nobody should live like that. So I guess the most inspirational part of my life, my story, is that God changed me and my heart uh, in a way that I couldn't do for myself, uh, but he did it for me, which it reinstates my faith and lets me know that, okay, yeah, there's a higher power. There's a creator of the world that loves everybody. He, no matter what, don't, don't be afraid. You can be, don't, don't beat yourself up because God still loves you. And guess what? So do I. I have nothing against you. I want to help you. I want you to know you're just like I am, right? Uh, I was broken one day. I was broken. I carried my, this pain around my whole life. And I know that you do too, because we're all people, we're all the same. But I, I'm not condemning you, I'm not holding it against you. I want you to know that there is hope. And I'm not just saying that, right? I wanna show you, if you wanna know how to fish, I'll show you how to fish. But you have to be willing to drop that fishing line in the, in the water, because I'm not gonna do it for you. I'll show you how to do it, but you yeah. gotta do it. So that's, I think, what is the most inspirational story that I can tell you. It's not just one person. It's just the uh, many people, many people that need to hear that there's hope, that there's hope. There, you don't have to, you don't have to suffer. We don't have to suffer. And if you do I mean, suffer, just, just know that. You got to imagine a lot of them don't know, don't know a path back, and you're helping them with that path. Which uh, I applaud you for that. And part of that is just having a place to stay, a place to, to call their own, which is awesome. I I, I appreciate that. I think also two people need to know that they're important, right? That they're important and that, um, you know, we all make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. One of the classes I'm teaching right now is on forgiveness. And I think people need to realize that forgiveness is what forgiveness means. It means permission to stop suffering. I love that. I love that, Joe. Joe, I, I think I, I can speak for myself that I've learned uh, a ton 
from you in the, the two short conversations that we've had. I also want to thank you for your service. Uh, much appreciated. My wife's baby sister is a Marine as well. So she was uh, based out of Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, and she did some tours uh, overseas as well. And, you know, one thing that we do every night, Joe, is uh, when I've got my twins that just turned two. And so every single night when we put them down uh, to go to sleep, you know, we say just a quick family prayer. And we pray that young folks like you when you were 17 and Gary's daughter at whatever age she was when she joined, that they will continue to be inspired to join the armed services so that we all can live in the best country in the world. Thank you for your service, Gary. Make sure your daughter knows that we thank her as well for her service. And just a really insightful conversation, uh, the pathway to permanency, permanency, I think that that just kind of encapsulates our conversation today, you know, just uh, getting people on that pathway to, to, you know, experience the, the joy and the safety and all the other positive emotions that come with having your own place to lay your head at, at night. So, uh, you know, thank you for the work that you have done and are doing. And I, I imagine uh, continue to do for many years to come, but just as we kind of close it up and don't let me forget to ask you where, where people can, can track you down if they want to connect with you or support, support your uh, endeavors. Tell us, Joe, what, what does the future, what does the future look like for the work that you're, that you're doing right now? Uh, it, it looks very uh, promising and challenging at the same time because there's so, so many needs uh, for the homeless primarily. Uh, but as I said, everybody has a special gift. So there's people out there that feed people. There's people out there that provide transitional housing. And there's people like me that want to pr provide permanent housing. And so together, we're able to provide all of those services to people who are in need. And I think that the future, especially here in California, is uh, gonna be very, uh, very challenging, but, but the opportunities are there. And I'm looking forward to just developing properties, uh, existing properties that are dilapidated, that are not being used to renovate those homes and to maximize densities so that we can house more people in, in, on one property. So I'm very, uh, uh, I'm very optimistic about the future. Uh, one thing that I didn't mention to you, and I'll just kind of insert this in there, and that is that I am, as a veteran, I am a member of the United States Volunteers. And what the United States Volunteers do is we are a uh, veteran service organization that pro provides final honors for our, our fallen brothers and sisters, right? So we, we give them their honor, right? And the families, uh, we want to honor the families and we want them to know they have not been forgotten. Just because one of the reasons I do that is because there was a young man or a woman who was 17 years old who gave their life in some foreign country and never had the opportunity to live their life fully, right? And then there's a family with a big hole in their heart that will never be filled. And so that is the honor. That's the honor that we have as veterans to serve one another a lot, living or dead. 
they deserve honor in life and they deserve honor when they leave this life. So I just want to give a shout out to the United States Volunteers for the honor that I have to serve our fellow veterans. Fantastic. Um, my last comments, uh, it's uh, Joe, you're an inspiration. You're making a, a difference in the world, which is awesome. And um, I'm honored to, to get to know you. My pleasure, Gary. Yeah, thank you very much, Joe. Really, really appreciate your time and all your insights and uh, all the great work that you're doing for uh, your local community and for the for the world at large, Joe. So uh, anybody that might want to track you down to have a conversation to support your efforts to, to get to get involved, how, what's the best place for people to find you, Joe? The best way for people to find me would be on my phone number. I don't know if I can give that out, but uh, or my website because it has my contact information. I believe Gary, you were on there. You, you saw uh, yep. there's a there's a contact page on there. So I'll take your lead on what uh, I, what is allowable for me to give out. Yeah, you give any, anything you're comfortable giving, Joe. Go ahead. All right. So for those of you who want to connect with me here in Richmond, California, or uh, you want to consult or talk to me about maybe the same work that I'm doing in your neighborhood, wherever you are, I can be uh, re reached at my website, which is www.tentmakersinc.org. And that's uh, all one word. Or you can call me. I can be reached at 510-775-3810. And finally, you can also reach me by email. And that email address is joeserrano56 at gmail.com. And I'll spell it because I know sometimes my last name is hard to spell. That is J-O-E-S-E-R-R-A-N-O-5-6 at gmail.com. Fantastic. Well, Joe, before we wrap up, let me ask you, because I'm always curious where, where people get these numbers, you know, what is the five, six representing your, in your, uh, email address? <laughs> Landon, I don't know if you've ever read books on numerology, uh, but I have, and, you know, not that I'm a, you know, a cultist or anything like that, but, uh, I was born in 1956. Huh? And one, the other thing is according to this, uh, numerology stuff, five, six is a number that inspires or promotes or to be a family man actually it's a, it's a balance right it's a businessman it's kind of weird right when this five six i see the number all the time by the way you know i can look at the clock and it's like 156 or uh i'll be listening to something and it'll say five six or you know numbers are very fascinating to me so but it means a balance a business and that my business is in exactly what i'm doing housing you know building creating so i'm a creative person but I also have to balance that with having people in my life. You know, we can't just be working all the time. We have to be able to balance our lives. You know, we help people, but we also got to be social people too, right? So that's the number is very significant. I'm glad you asked that question. because So it's not just my the date I was born, but it also is sort of an indication of where I'm at right now in my life. Love it. Love it. Good deal, Joe. All right, Joe. Thank you again for joining us. Yeah, you're a, you're a true tycoon. and. Uh, Continue doing the great work that you're doing, Joe. We thank you for all that. And uh, we look forward to uh, following your continued success and the work you're doing. Well, I want to thank you, Landon and Gary. 
and the Business Radio X for inviting me. It's been my pleasure, and I hope that I've inspired somebody to become a Marine. You know, don't necessarily, <laughs> don't necessarily have to join the Corps, man, but you do have to have that mentality. You definitely have to take control of this if you want to be great in the world. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance. Austin and Landon are comprehensive financial planning professionals specializing in financial, estate, and succession planning for small business owners. Austin and Landon have offices in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Las Vegas, Nevada, and represent clients in 14 states throughout the country. Join Austin, Landon, and the Featured Tycoons live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. right here on Business Radio X and your favorite podcast platform.